This is The Ethicist, a podcast from the New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Anthony Appiah teaches philosophy at New York University. Welcome, Anthony. Good to be with you, Amy. And Kenji Yoshino teaches law at New York University. Welcome, Kenji. Always a pleasure, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about how good does a person have to look, who owns the funds for a good deed, and what to say and when to say it. Before we get started, I want to ask you a small favor. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast listeners. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply to make great podcasts about the things you love and things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm slash survey, or click the link in the show notes, and thank you. All right. Our first question. Dear ethicists, I have a small law practice with several employees. My secretary, who is the face of my firm to every client or prospective client who walks through the door, fell last December and knocked out eight front teeth. Since then, she has not had them replaced or even had dentures made. Consequently, she comes to work with no front teeth, which is not the face I want to put forward. She has health and dental insurance through my office, but she says that she's too nervous about surgery and hates going to the dentist, so she's not going to do anything about it. Can I ethically require her to either fix her teeth or get dentures as a condition of continued employment? Signed, name withheld, New York City. Um, I don't think that we, you've told us some of the really important things that we'd need to know before we got much further with this because you haven't said anything really about what conversation you've had with her. You have no, uh, we have no idea, I'm sure you do, but we don't have any idea um, about whether she she's delaying it, never plans to do anything about it. Um, By the way, one possibility is that when she says she's nervous about surgery, what she means is she has a pathological fear of these medical procedures that she would be really scared, not just that it's sort of the sort of thing that she doesn't want to do, but that she would find it extremely difficult to do it. But she might just be thinking... um, look, there are deductibles on these things. They're quite expensive. I don't have the money right now. She might be politely, she, she might be characterizing something as, as evidence that, uh, uh, by saying that she's afraid when really what she is is simply not rich enough. The fact that she has uh, insurance and medical uh, medical and dental insurance doesn't mean that she's not going to have to pay anything. And she may not, I don't know how much money she has. So anyway, I just sort of feel that the, the, the right way into this, the right beginning way into this is to have a conversation with her at least at, uh, in which you discuss fully what all the issues are. Uh, it's one thing to say that you don't like uh, that, that she's the face of your business and it's not the face, face you want to put forward. It's another thing to, to say that she's actually damaging your business. If she's actually damaging your business, then I think uh, you can say to her, look, I'm sorry, but uh, unless you're willing to do something about this, um, you can't do the job that I'm paying you to do. I think we so often come to this point of start out with a full and frank conversation with the other person. If she then, after that full and frank conversation, simply said, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I hate the dentist. I'm not even going to get dentures, 
because I don't want to sit in the dentist chair and be fitted for them. Um, I think we would want to encourage you to really think about um, how much um, surprise and discomfort is it causing your clients. I mean, maybe you're assuming it is and maybe it doesn't. I will also say eight missing front teeth is a lot of teeth. <laughs> and I don't, I don't find it hard to imagine that it would also actually make her more difficult to understand. If you're missing your central front teeth, it's much harder to understand the person when they're speaking to you. Um, so I think after the full and frank conversation, you'd have a better idea of how to proceed. But it does seem to me that if she refused to do anything about it, maybe it would be possible to find her a different position in the office if there's another one that she could fulfill. But if she refuses to do anything about it and there is no other place in the office, um, I don't know that I think it's unreasonable to say this isn't going to work out. Yeah, so just to set the table, I know this isn't um, exactly the question, but to back up for a minute, we live in a society that adheres to the principle of employment at will. So that just means to clear away some brush that legally the letter writer could terminate uh, the employee on the ground uh, given um, because this doesn't touch on any kind of federally protected category like disability, at least as the facts um, given suggest. But given that we're talking about ethics rather than simply about law, I actually want to pull against um, both of you insofar as I'm not sure that employer preference should control to this degree as a matter of ethics. So I, I was trying to think about analogies. So if we were thinking, of course, in the race or gender context, we would never say that simply because customer preferences you know, were otherwise that those customer preferences should control. But even outside of you know, federally protected categories, let's say this individual were overweight, such that she would be less likely to be effective as the face or the body of the office. Would either of you make it a condition or say that it was unethical to say it was ethical to make it a condition of her employment that she lose weight. So she's not deprived of her capacity to interact with the public simply because she lacks front teeth. She's simply not able to interact in it in the way that you, in the way that the letter writer wishes her to interact. I disagree. I think that missing eight teeth, if your job is to greet and speak to people, actually does hamper your ability to be literally the face, but also to be the voice. It's, it's harder to understand people. I mean, it's, it, it affects your speech right. as well as sort of, you know, the, whatever the visual discomfort is. And my argument about the very overweight person having that job is that it truly doesn't hamper their ability to be the face. It doesn't in any way affect their ability to greet people when they come in the door, to ask them what they're there for and to engage them in conversation and put them at their ease because none of that is going to be affected by the person's weight. Yeah, but that's got to be case by case, right? I mean, y you could imagine a person who was able to speak, you know, perfectly clearly, and certainly the letter writer has not mentioned that. All he talks about is, you know, he may be speaking figuratively, but all he's talking about <laughs> is the visual, right, yeah, the okay. face that I want to put forward. So, okay. Well, I wanted him to seek a more... Um, a, be a better reason 
which you know would be sort of the the nature of the interaction. Well, I think and, that's. I mean, I, I, I mean, in fairness to you, and in fairness to Anthony, like I think what both of you are saying, and and this is actually well established, and then within the the legal framework, which you know again is not the issue, but I think is is probative or instructive about how we think about things ethically too. In legal parlance, the idea is, do you have a business-related justification or is this a bona fide occupational qualification for the job? So both of you are saying, you know, would this actually hamper her in doing her job effectively? And uh, I took that to be what Antony was saying also when he said, could he reasonably have rejected her? Is there a you know justification that is tied to the job? I'm not sure that I see it. You know, I think that the next generation of thinking about these kinds of claims is going to be uh, what uh, Deborah Rohde talks about in her book, The Beauty Bias, right? Which is to say, do we think about the degree to which we allow third-party preferences to control how non-federally protected, non, you know, you know, these are not groups that are ever going to be protected, but say somebody is overweight, say somebody's lacking their teeth, say something has, the, you know their hair dyed pink, you know, these are not things that directly control uh, anything other than the image that the company seeks to put forward. Are we really willing to say um, these, I think the presumption in general culture is, which is why I began with the at-will employment thing, I think that that's not just a legal principle, that's an American principle of saying the employer gets to say whatever they want in controlling their business. But if there isn't a rationale for why people you know, show up at work in various ways, then it may be that the employer needs to change their values rather than having the uh, employee change theirs. Yeah, I think these issues are complicated because there are considerations that have to do with the employer's attitude, and then there are in this case, considerations that have to do with the client's or the customer's attitudes. Uh, we rightly think that if the customer's attitudes are racist or sexist, that they should not be taken into account by the employer, and that's that's that the law also uh, supports that view. But um, but then the issue is going to be what customer tastes strike us as reasonable. And what don't? So, for example, it doesn't seem to me that if someone, if, if your employee um, um, has severe body odor uh, such that it uh, causes discomfort to your clients, it seems to me uh, you can reasonably say, look, uh, you might say, I don't care about this myself. I, I, I grew up in a smelly family, for example. But, <laughs> but, my, but I think it's okay for my customers to tell me that they don't want to have this experience. So I'm going to ask you politely as, as my employee not to. So there's going to be a wide range Absolutely. of cases where yeah. the issue is, um, is, there, is the response of the client or the customer one that comports with our social understanding of what they're entitled to? And I, it, it's, it seems to me that it's part of our current social understanding that if people have uh, some have lost all their teeth and are in that way unattractive uh, and maybe not possible, not able to speak, and there's something they can do about it, uh, that we're entitled to, uh, we're not in, we're not being merely fussy uh, when we uh, when we ask not to have but to see, deal that, with them. That's that's but but. Uh, you I'm, know, not, I'm just I'm just saying that's what I think the social understanding is. As your point is, it may change, and it, it may, and, and maybe it's it a should bit change. Yeah, Amy, Amy's exactly right. That, that that my thought is that you know relying too much on social understanding sort of uh, sort of faces the fact that maybe we need to push against that social understanding. So to take a non-civil rights kind of example, so to make it harder for myself, let's take weight. Right. So you know, it used to be that 
airlines could routinely say that flight attendants have to be below a certain weight because that's what customer preferences dictate. And I'm sure they were right. I'm sure if you took focus groups, right, that there's a lot of weightism going on. But I think we've changed the culture in such a way that now it would seem kind of preposterous to uh, require that or really offensive for an airline to say you must meet these height weight requirements in order to be a flight attendant. Right. Let's dive into the next letter. Dear ethicists, I volunteered to go on a week-long medical mission overseas with a small optometric foundation. I followed the instructions for raising funds to cover my trip fees, room and board, etc., which was to have all my, quote, benefactors make their checks payable to the organization and to put my name and trip fee on the memo line. I raised nearly the entire amount, adding my own check to round out the full amount. I found out the week before we were to leave that I had a viral infection and so had to cancel. I was told the amount of my trip fee would be returned. Only a few weeks later, I did receive a check, but only for the amount I had written with no mention of the funds from my individual benefactors. When I inquired, I sent a list of the names with the corresponding amounts and that the checks could be sent to me and I would distribute with personal notes of explanation. In response, I was told I needed to provide mailing addresses for each, and the organization would send a note to each telling of its good work that I was unable to make the trip, and that if they wanted their contribution refunded, they would need to fill out the enclosed form indicating this and return it. When I replied that this seemed like a sleazy way of getting to keep contributions that had been earmarked for my trip fees, and that I didn't want to subject my friends and family to having fill out such a form, I was told I had no say in this, and to take it or leave it. I realize 501c3 organizations can make up their own rules within reason, but I'm curious if this is legal, let alone ethical. And if you agree that this practice leaves something to be desired, can you suggest how I can make this right on behalf of the friends and family members who are only doing me a favor, short of refunding their contributions, which if I could have afforded the trip fee in the first place, I would not have had to do the fundraising. Sincerely, name withheld. So again, if you're really curious about the legal issue, I'd consult an expert in the laws governing nonprofits. But the one that we collectively consulted says that on the face of your question, it does not appear to be illegal. So you asked that question. We've answered it to the best of our ability, although the lawyer also said that uh, she would want more facts, as lawyers always say. Uh, <laughs> in terms of whether this is ethical, I, I really think that it the foundation is on very strong ground here. So... Let me just put it this way. If I solicit funds for a philanthropic goal, it's quite likely that my friends and family would be more likely to support that goal than if I solicited funds for something that was socially destructive or even neutral. So let's say that you as a letter writer agree to give me money for the cause of my choice, if like cystic fibrosis, if I uh, complete a uh, marathon. So this is very familiar to all of us, I think. And that you pay the you know foundation that fights cystic fibrosis up front, even if I can't complete the marathon because I'm sick that day, I think that we would both understand that the marathon was just a proxy for my own desire to advance the cause. So I think most people wouldn't ask for their money back. So it seems completely reasonable for me to, for the foundation to make the default assumption that your benefactor is meant to support the foundation as much as they're meant to support you. Yeah, I, I I agree, and if I may say that, that I think something went wrong in this <laughs> conversation on on the questioner's own account of the matter uh, when she introduced the idea when she said she called, she told them they were sleazy. Um, I can't see that it's reasonable. First of all, um, 
I, I imagine this may have happened in, a, in an email exchange. And, uh, and the trouble is with email is that that sort of uh, ratcheting up of the rhetoric goes on. And I uh, urge us all to re- remember this when we're uh, having <laughs> email time with people we disagree with. But look, um, they offered to return the money. And they suggested a perfectly reasonable way to do that. You wanted them to give it to you. But frankly, uh, what they suggested made it more likely in their eyes that it would get back to the right people. Since they don't know you, they don't know whether you're actually going to write these checks and send them off to the people. So they proposed a perfectly reasonable way of solving the problem. I agree with Kenzie that the right default here is these people meant to support the organization. They didn't mean to support you. You invited them to support the organization. And so they're quite likely to, to be willing to leave the money with the organization. But the organization's willing to have them you can write. You're perfectly free to write to these people and tell them that what's happened, and if they want to, and and you can tell them what the organisation has offered to do, and they can do it. I do not think that people, in these circumstances, can regard it as a terrible imposition to be asked to uh, fill in a form uh, uh, so that the organisation can refund the money. But as I say, my my feeling is is that. That my sort of main ethical feeling here is uh, calling people sleazy in this kind of interaction is is really a, unhelpful. I I agree that it's unhelpful. I also think that the point that Kenji made about all of this medical mission is serves as a proxy, as the expression of your support of the foundation, and that's why your family and friends contributed because they share an interest in supporting the foundation and the idea that it would be sleazy of the foundation to ask the family and friends to fill out a form so they could get their money back if they decided that the only reason they cared about this foundation was because of your interaction just doesn't seem reasonable to me. Um, The foundation's not refusing to refund the money. They are making it a slower process. Maybe they would like people to have a few extra minutes to feel guilty about getting their money back. But it seems to me perfectly ethical that they're prepared to refund the money when they receive said onerous form. And it also seems to me um, very much that one would assume that the family and friends would want the foundation to keep the money. And to anticipate an objection to the marathon analogy, the letter writer might say that the marathon doesn't directly advance the cause in the way that the mission that the letter writer is going on would, so that people were really paying for the service that the letter writer was providing. But if that were truly the case, you know, again, as both of my colleagues are saying, the foundation is allowing the benefactors to rebut that presumption by filling out a form. So again, from where I stand, the foundation is, you know, rock solid and it'd be what they're doing is completely ethical. Right. And don't call people sleazy. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Let's dive into the next question. Dear ethicist, I wondered, as gender reassignment surgery gets better and happens earlier, what ethical obligation does a transgender person have to inform a potential romantic partner of past procedures and operations? Sincerely, A.W., North Carolina. I think periodically this question comes up. I think it has even come up in our own column uh, with Randy Cohn about five years ago. My own feeling is that there, there's an ethical obligation to a potential romantic partner um, at, or to a romantic partner. And I understand we can't always tell the difference. 
when you're having a drink with somebody at seven o'clock, you don't know if they're necessarily going to be a potential romantic partner. And my observation is a lot of people get into bed with potential romantic partners, and they may not have the time or the inclination to share all the information that the other person might found, find pertinent. And that's often why they get into bed with them before the conversation rather than after the conversation. But I don't think that that's necessarily the ethical thing to do. Um, this, to me, is one of those areas that is both etiquette and ethics um, and definitely has the aspect of the golden rule, um, which I think is a big player in etiquette as well as ethics. I think we, have, we all have the same obligations, um, which is that everyone has some things that should be shared before the relationship goes very far. Would you want to know certain things about yourself before you got in bed with you? Um, I think the general ethical standard is be kind, be forthcoming, be transparent, and do that ahead of the you know delightfully unfolding events. Um, I understand that somebody who is trans wants to live their life as a woman or as a man without constantly referring back to their history and medical procedures. Um, on the other hand, if you're going to be engaged with somebody in this very intimate way that centers so closely on the physical, it does seem to me that this is worth saying to somebody before the romantic relationship or the sexual relationship gets very far. Yeah, I think that's right, because the, the key thing is that um, we, we do have a kind of social understanding about sex, which is that it's the case that in our society and in most societies, the sex and the gender of your partners matters. The bodily, the, the body of your partner matters. Sex is in part about the body. And this is one of the things about the history of the body that people would expect you to tell them. Now, I say this is part of the current social understanding, and you might think, uh, that there's something wrong with the current social understanding, that it's transphobic, that it's, uh, that it's, uh, that there's something wrong with the way in which we think about these things. And to the extent that um, our attitudes in this area, I think, are shifting, it may be that the social understanding will change and that different expectations will be there. But right now, I think a person... Um, reasonably ex would expect that before the, that you had sexual intimacy, at least sexual intimacy of the sort that's supposed to lead somewhere, uh, that they would, uh, you would reveal this uh, to them. And so, uh, as I say, we, maybe the current the social understanding will, will be shifted. Uh, that is a possibility. But in given the current social understanding and given, uh, and given uh the reasonable expectations of people when they enter into sexual relations, I think uh, you have to make this part of the small package of things that you need to tell people uh, before you're going uh, very far in the sexual direction. I instinctively agree with that, but I think one of the reasons why it might be worth revisiting this question every five years <laughs> uh, is, is just the changing norms, but also the changing technology that we're talking about, right? I mean, individuals are transitioning much, much earlier in their lives, and it makes the transition uh, much more effective, right? So let me pose a question to my um, esteemed colleagues here. So let's say that you were able to transition and you were able to uh, be completely, with regard to uh, your phenotype, uh, present 
in a 100%, you know, um, convincing way so that you'd be phenotypically identical to being, uh, uh, the say, if you were a trans woman, uh, to being a woman. Uh, let's say that someday you have our reproductive capacity uh, changes so that, you know, you would be able to uh, do that as well. Uh, would you still have to disclose? I mean, at one point in, in the technological history of transgender, uh, of the transgender movement, um, would medical or social mores change? But, but I don't think that should change sort of the, the etiquette or the, or the ethical underplaying. I mean, I, I agree, Kendra, that's exactly what I was thinking. I said, so what if, what if you get to the point where the technology um, is so good that whether you, whether you are um, a man or a woman, it is impossible for somebody to tell. Why would that concern, right, the one that we would have maybe now when the technology, um, especially um, for somebody who's a trans man, is not, um, not as uh, advanced and not as, um, you know, not as perfected as no doubt it will eventually be, does that change the idea that there are some things you should say to somebody as you are getting ready to either engage with them sexually or seeing them as a potential romantic partner? Um, you know, should we tell people that we have children or not tell them that we have children, that we were previously married or not previously married? One of the examples I used, you know, or I was born a conjoined twin and I had successful surgery when I was two years old. I mean, we we can sort of instinctively see yes you should probably tell them but part of that instinct is that we believe that they may be able to tell whether you inform them or not and so what kenji is is suggesting is if they can't tell without you providing the information what should you be telling someone right i do Which think it's so interesting to it me. is interesting and i think that in the long run uh, when the technology is better, it will be the case that the the point at which you tell the, someone this fact about your history may change. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, may, it may it may be further down the line because it may seem less uh, less relevant in the initial period of the relationship. I think I would, if I had a relationship with someone who had been a conjoined twin, I would like I would feel it very odd. If at no, and this has nothing to do with sex, but uh, I would feel it very odd if they felt that it was okay never to tell me that. It seems like a kind of important fact about yourself, N- not one that's relevant to sex, as I said, but still an important fact. So, and I would have thought that for most people, but maybe again, you know, as as time goes on and people have uh, do the transition younger, it may be less important about someone that um, they spent a few years of their life with the wrong body. Uh, if you've spent you know, if you're if you're J- J- James Morris and you become Jan Morris hmm. in your fifties, it seems very weird not to mention to someone with whom you're planning to have a romantic relationship that you spent the first half of your life as a man. Right. Yeah. I, I think about about this as like when and under what circumstances do you have the responsibility to share like a major life event in your own history with somebody? Um, but it's interesting that you know the the tenor of this question. I think even five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, was, well, of course you would have to share this simply because it has to do with sex and the sexual relationship. I think increasingly we're going to shift from that debate to the debate about whether or not you have to share these uh, significant changes that have occurred to you in your life history, whether they pertain, pertain to their sexuality or not. And I view that to be a hopeful development. So I would say, you know, 
I think all of us are agreed that, yes, you do have an obligation to share uh, at the point where, you know, sexual activity is on the horizon uh, in 2015, but check back with us in five years. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for The Ethicist. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Kerry Hillman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Anthony Appia and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicist.